This is A Voice, a podcast with Dr. Gillian Kays and Jeremy Fisher. This is A Voice. Hello and welcome to This is A Voice, Series 2, Episode 7. I'm Jeremy Fisher and normally you'd hear Gillian next, but because she's recovering from heart surgery, we're taking a short break from live podcasting and we thought it would be a good idea to share some of the best bits with you from our own duo episodes. Let's start at the very beginning. Our first podcast back at the beginning of July 2020, who we are and what we do, including surviving lockdown. Here's Gillian on moving to teach courses online and the first of our Ask Me Anything questions. It's changed the way we work, not simply because we're delivering online, but it's changed the way we deliver training. And that's been fascinating. Is it bad to say, I love lockdown? No, it's not. Because We know you're an introvert, I love lockdown. I'm an extrovert introvert, and I love having all of this time at home. Mm. Um, And I love not having to talk to people, and I love not having to be out there. Mm. I do go out and I, I enjoy it, but... And my idea of heaven is having a book to read and sit in the garden. And we've actually had a lot more time to do that. And it's been really fascinating doing this course because we, as a couple, are so used to teaching 8, 9, 10, 11 hours a day, packing the content in, Mm. packing the value in. And what we've discovered on, particularly on this course, is that People, first of all, can't take that amount of information um, online Mm. because you have a whole load of new things that you're having to deal with, including trying to pick up subtle cues that are actually, they're out of sync with what you're hearing. This is one of the things that there's been just been a research paper published um, on out of sync Zoom and why it's so exhausting, Mm. which is fascinating. So we can't do the the number of hours that we normally do. And it actually it's worked really well for us because normally what happens is we do 21 hours over two and a half days Mm. and then we do nothing for three days because we can't. Mm. And now we're going, that was that two hours. Here's another hour of follow-up that we're doing. And what should we do this afternoon? So it's been a massive rethink and a growth process. And we'd love to know from those of you listening what your own growth process has been during this time. Yes. Let us know. Let us know. There was a really interesting discussion about this in our Facebook group. And mm. it's quite a few years ago now where somebody said, do I need to be a, do I need keyboard skills in order to be a good singing teacher? And there was quite a division of thought on that because some people felt that you had to be able to read music and understand what you were looking at in terms of the score and accompany your students in order to do a good job. And other people said, no, I always work with backing tracks. Um, Some people said, actually, I really don't play piano very well. Um, Others said, I, you know, have basic piano skills so I can uh, cue my students in for exercises, but I don't accompany the songs. And I, I think that's a really interesting discussion. Um, I have to say, I wrote a book on this um, with Anne Leatherland called How to Accompany Your Students Even Even If You're Terrible at the Piano. And there are certain conventions that you can use. I mean, essentially, if you learn four chords, you can play about 500 different pop songs. Um and also the backing tracks are just so good at the moment and there are so many of them that as long as you know how to queue up something, uh, I would probably go with that. I think the the real problem is how well you can split your focus and that depends on how how comfortable you are with your piano skills. I am very comfortable playing anything at all and I am able to split my focus, but then I have worked for 30 seven years as a professional pianist. So I ought to be able to do that. Uh, I think if you are not very comfortable with your piano skills and you end up focusing too much on what it is that you're playing, first of all, you're probably doing something that's too complicated, so simplify. And secondly, that's not your job. Your job is to focus Mm. on the singer. Mm. Your job is actual vocal technique. And I think that in a way that question is two questions, which is do I need piano skills to teach singing? Answer, no. 
And do I need piano skills to go to um, something like a drama college and teach singing there? Answer, almost certainly, Mm. because they aren't really looking for singing teachers. They are looking for vocal coaches who teach singing. And that's a different thing. Vocal coaches need to play. I am going to go there. I'm eyeing Jeremy up. Uh, <laughs> I'm, simply get, because I'm getting the eye from Julianne. The evil eye. <laughs> First of all, uh, he's absolutely right. That is uh, that is accepted practice that they will want you to be able to play piano uh, if you're teaching singing, particularly in musical theatre colleges mm. or in further education. Mm. I think one of the reasons for that is they simply don't have the budget to pay for a rep coach. Now, if you go to a music conservatoire, that is very different. My singing teacher, when I was learning singing um, back in the mm, 1970s, where I was working with a very good singing teacher, she could play enough to... She didn't really accompany exercises. She taught you the pattern and then she gave you one note or maybe it was a chord. She did not do songs. She did not play songs. Mm. You brought your accompanist into the lesson and she also ran um, masterclasses, weekly masterclasses, where you could take your rep. She was a good singing teacher. Mm. That's the conservatoire tradition. Mm. Most further education colleges simply don't have that budget and they don't have the rep coach. They don't have the pianists in there. There's also a thing about what repertoire you're teaching. I mean, we will go into this a lot Mm. more um, in a separate podcast, but there is – if the repertoire you're teaching is musically complex, so if you've got something like a Richard Strauss Leet, which is complicated to play and actually complicated harmonically as well, mm. you're going to need some level of skill to work that out, even to train somebody to sing it. Mm. If you're doing a Lady Gaga song, uh, apologies to Lady Gaga, but not musically that complicated, um, you can busk your way through that or you can hit one chord every, every bar mm. or you can get a backing track. But you'd better know the style. Yes, much more important. if you don't know the style, I mean, if we're going to use the analogy of um, Richard Strauss, Mm. if you're used to teaching Richard Strauss and suddenly you have to teach Lady Gaga, you might really not do that well. Mm. I think what I'd like to say going back to the first part of the question is, for me, it doesn't matter whether you can play piano or not. As it happens, I can. And I say that in the presence of my husband. (laughs) I can. Um, It matters how good a musician you are. Now, you can be a musician without actually being able to read music. Totally. But if you don't understand melody, if you can't track melodies and you can't track pitch, if you can't track and process uh, rhythmic patterns, and if you can't understand the the environment, the harmony, and all of the stuff that's going on in the, the backing of the... Uh, the music track, then my opinion, don't teach singing. Yeah, I'll be a little blunter um, because I sometimes am. If you don't understand music and you're teaching singing, you aren't teaching singing, you're teaching noise making. Mm. It's a very different Mm -hmm. thing. Yeah, that's that's our position, folks. That's our position. In episode two, we focused on the difference between us. We're a married couple, but we have different music backgrounds as a singing teacher and a vocal coach. Hello, and welcome to our second podcast. And this one is Vocal Coach versus Singing Teacher. I feel a little bit of competitiveness coming on here. Absolutely not. I'm Jeremy Fisher, and I'm the vocal coach. And I'm Gillian Kays, and I'm the singing teacher. Okay, so fight. Um, (laughs) What do you think is the difference? Oh, wow. You put me on the spot there. Straight away. I know uh, one thing I certainly feel as a singing teacher is the the level of musical ability. Please don't shoot me, other singing teachers. I think of uh, a vocal coach, certainly the kind of vocal performance coach that Jeremy is, having um, a very deep as well as broad sense of musicianship and a sort of an overview of performance, whereas what we singing teachers tend to focus on is the voice, the body, and tailoring that to the individual singer, the client, the client in the room, the student in the room, as we say. 
I'm aware that other singing teachers might not have that perspective, but it's certainly the one that I have working collaboratively with Jeremy. Mm. Okay, ask me the same know. question. <laughs> I didn't know you were going to ask me this question. Blimey. Yeah, go okay. on. Ask me the same one. What do you see as being the difference between a vocal coach and a singing teacher? It's actually quite interesting because it's very similar to what you said. Um, the thing for me, and I'm, I'm going to go straight to the same point that you did, which is musicianship. The vocal coach usually, and we, we're talking generalities here, but I'm going to go with the general, generality. Um, the vocal coach is normally an instrumentalist first. So they will have been playing instruments since usually a very young age, which means they have a experience of music that is not necessarily vocal. So you have a, a, an experience of instrumental music, which means that you learn music in a slightly different way. And we may break that down slightly later in this podcast. Um, whereas the singing teacher has the experience, whether they've been instrumentalists or not, they have the experience of voice. And producing music with a voice, I think, is a very different animal from producing music with an instrument, partly because you can't take your voice to the shop and replace it for a better one. You actually can, you've got the one you've got. Whereas I went through three oboes when I was at uh, music college and um, I've played thousands of pianos. So I'm constantly working with whatever instrument is in front of me. I think that's a very good point about each individual singer's voice being an individual instrument mm. and that that's what we're uh, working to develop and get the best out of as singing teachers. I think the lines get get quite blurred, actually, because we're talking black and white, really. We're talking the vocal coach um, doing the sort of performance and music coaching and the singing teacher doing vocal technique. And those lines do get blurred. And funnily enough, it depends on what the employer is almost. Do you know, I mean, with your description, you're saying that as a vocal coach, you're an instrumentalist first. In other words, your first instrument is less likely to be voice. Yes. As my first instrument was. I played three instruments. I played piano and violin as well as voice, but voice was always my first. Mm. So that means that in a sense, you're not a singer yeah, I'd go with that. Yeah, and maybe that's that's a slightly weird thing. Why do you think that gives you, as a vocal coach, a different perspective from me as a singing teacher? Oh, completely superior. Well, aside from that... <laughs> um, it It is to do with... It really is to do with music and how music works. Um, and I, in a way, I can only speak for myself which is I had, by the time I started coaching singers, and I was 19, I think, when I first started at music college, and I had already been playing an instrument for 12 years, uh, 13 years. Um, and therefore, I had a take on music, and this is classical music at the time. I had a take on music, and um, my story is, and this is absolutely true, I started coaching singers out of desperation, because I couldn't believe that they could make the same mistakes over and over again, or that they didn't understand how a phrase worked, or that they didn't understand how words fitted together. Um, so I genuinely, you know, one day went, oh, for heaven's sake, it goes like this. And the singer went, oh, that's really good. Thank you. Um, and I thought, oh, good. There's a, there's a job in insulting people. That's quite good. I hasten to say that I was not one of those singers, Lisa. I don't think I was one of those singers. In a way, you're taking me to a place that I wasn't expecting to go, but let's go there anyway. It reminds me of when I first started singing uh, as a professional chorister. Yeah. And I was very surprised to get this sort of vibe coming from the organists and the instrumentalists that we singers were a bit dim, that we were a bit thick, that we actually weren't good musicians. It was really quite an interesting vibe that used to come across. Mm. And I don't think that's what you mean, because I think what you're talking about is there's a way in which the singer is an instrumentalist with the whole body mm. and their psyche that I think is different from an instrumentalist who doesn't use words. Maybe it's words 
as I, part of the medium of song that is one of the big differentiators because I don't want mm. to say that a singer isn't an instrumentalist because we are. are instrumentalists. We happen to be playing the instrument of our body. Mm. Are we digging ourselves a hole here? No, I don't think so. I think it's a really interesting one. This is It's like a combination. First of all, you've got words, so you have um, a very direct means of communication that instrumentalists don't have. And secondly, you are creating the sound inside. There is no real sense of creating a sound outside yourself. The sound is created inside and released, if you like. So in any instrument at all, you are creating a sound outside yourself. And I think that's really vital. And it also says to me why singers need to feel and experience certain things um, you know they need to they need to know what the sound feels like or as well as what it sounds like um, and it's a very visceral sense and interestingly I I also know that that rumor that singers are stupid and I don't think it is I think it's to do with the visceral experience we are so going to get kickback for this <laughs> yeah I think you're right. So it's the viscerality, is that it a word? It is the viscerality of it. And that's what we respond to when we hear a singer sing. Yeah. And it's that um, that individuality as well that we respond to. Love that. Okay. Quite often people will come in and go, that phrase is really bugging me in this song. And I'm going, great. Okay, good. We'll do that phrase, but give me a run into it. Let's sing 32 bars before that phrase, because I need to find out what you're doing before to set yourself up for why it's not working. Mm, mm. Um, so how long do I usually spend on the warm-up? Three to four minutes. How quickly do I progress into the song? Immediately. Because that gives me a very strong context for working. And then we can talk about what somebody needs to do, what they want to do, and then start diagnosing what the problem is. So, and I've written a lot of articles on this. And in fact, the, the new book, Why Do We Need a Vocal Coach, is um, got something like 40 lessons that I break down in there, working with a lot of different people. I've got something to say here because I think it might help elucidate the difference between the vocal coach and the singing teacher. If I tell you why, I would refer a client to Jeremy. Mm. Sometimes you're working on uh, an aspect of vocal technique with a client and you can get a bit stuck. And sometimes the reason why you get stuck is a performance issue mm. rather than a technical development issue. And that might be a time when I would say, do you know what? I think that you might resolve this by working on the performance side of the song mm. uh, with Jeremy and I'll refer them across for a couple of sessions. Yep. Another time when I might refer a client to Jeremy is if they bring a fiendish song, like Most Sondheim or Jason Robert, Jason Brown, Robert Brown, and they are getting ready to put the song on its feet for performance. They need to do the song with the real accompaniment. You know, I can vamp, I can kind of work my way through almost anything, but it will not be what uh, the the client or the student is going to hear in performance. And they need to do that mm. because it's a collaborative thing between the singer and the, the pianist or the singer and the orchestra. It's not just you, the voice. Duetting with a stranger mm -hmm. in auditions. You know, you go in and you sing your song working with somebody that you've never met, usually playing something quite difficult. So I've mm. done, I mean, when we wrote successful singing auditions, I had at that point done eight and a half thousand auditions in the West End. So I knew what I was talking about. Um, and actually thinking about referring the other way, uh, there are clients that I go, Gillianne does this so much better, so much faster than I do. Go and have a couple of sessions with her because she will nail that technique in a way that I can't. Mm. Um, and one of my, um, one of my most, so the thing I do the most, I think, when I'm when I'm referring to you is working with women, particularly, who are exploring taking a modal or a chest voice higher. Mm. That seems to be the thing. I mean, I know you're extremely good at that. And that seems to be the thing. Sometimes I can do it. Sometimes I just go, you're wasting your money with me for this particular thing. Go to Gillianne. She will nail it and then come back and we'll work it. I am the comfortable, easy chest voice queen. <laughs> So it is interesting that, uh, you know, even though I know a lot of technique, there are things that I just go, Gillian has this nailed. And 
why not go? Mm. So we're mm. very comfortable swapping clients. And in fact, what's also interesting is that we often have clients who prefer one of our energy. So I am the slightly more upbeat slightly left higher, field higher, person. higher energy, uh, just pull things out of left field type person. Mm. And Gillian is a more methodical, slightly calmer, slightly cooler. I think that's fair. I think that's absolutely fair. And I'm very happy with those um, <laughs> monikers. Is that the right <laughs> yeah, word? Yeah. Monica will do. They yeah. can be my monikers. Bless her. Yeah. Episode three is a topic dear to my heart. How do we learn a song? In this one, Gillianne prods me to talk about how I teach songs in a customer-not-present situation, and we discuss a simple way to make the song your own. Hello, and welcome to episode three of our podcast, This Is A Voice. Fantastic. On number three already. Yes. Um, so what's the topic today? Ah, well, the topic today is something that gets discussed a lot on our singing teacher training. And also it's a question I think that comes up a lot from working singers, which is what's the best way of learning songs? And for us teachers, what's the best way to teach songs? Okay, that's good. And I think at the moment, because so many people are working, um, you know, with social distancing, you know, via the internet, mm. there are additional challenges in terms of how we teach remotely because of latency and all of that. You know, you can't accompany your students on the piano. You can't note bash on the piano with them in the way that perhaps you would do when they're in there in the studio. True, yes. Okay. Now, there's something that you do as um, kind of from your re uh, rehearsal coach days yeah. that I think is very helpful. This is, uh, if you are going to use the piano... I have no idea what's coming next. <laughs> Don't play the harmonies to teach line by line. Oh, yeah. Yeah, tell yeah, us about yeah. that. Okay, so people will sometimes say to me, look, I can't get to you. Can you do me a rehearsal track? Because literally I have this this audition in, in you know, three hours' time and I can't get to you. So what I will do is I'll get the music from them and play them to versions of it. I'll record them two versions. And the first one is the melody slowed down. Because what they need to do is to work out what the, the intervals are. And I will do just the melody very, really quite strong and really sort of sketch a very quiet harmony underneath them, just in the left hand, just chords, so that they can hear harmonically. Because some singers don't think harmonically and some do. Mm. Um, they just hear the harmony that's going on underneath the melody so that they can at least tune to the bar. And then I'll do them a second version, which is the accompaniment at proper speed, um, so that they get used to singing whatever is going to be um, being played, uh, whether it's a backing track or a, a live pianist, in the audition itself. So two versions. Mm, very important. Yeah. Yeah, and the reason that Gillian says don't put loud harmonies underneath and don't play two parts or three parts or five mm. parts or anything like that is that when you're listening to a, a track very difficult to separate out what your melody might be if you've got banging harmonies underneath you. Mm -hmm. Unless you do something to feature it, which, of course, you can do nowadays with recording equipment. Yes. Okay. Now, so far, we've talked about really just the, the basic parts. I mean, you talked a little bit about the intention in, um, when, in If I Loved You. Yes. I want us to talk about the other things that go on in a song, the... Yeah. The musical backdrop of a song in terms of what's going on harmonically and also about the shape of the melody. So I'm going to share with you, I'm really digging into the archives here, um, something that I used to do with my actors. And again, I'm thinking of, you know, the actors on a community theatre course who singing was kind of something they did not want to do. And uh, one day I, I went into class and I took with them um, – I've never been in love before from guys and dolls, which I knew they'd hate, but I wanted them to learn a little bit about lyrical singing. So I didn't give them the words. What I did was I simply played the melody for them on the piano. And then I played it several times and I said, you know, do you want to just move around to this melody? Um, you know, how does it make you feel? You know, maybe you want to hum along with it sometimes. And uh, then they had to write down the feeling that it gave them. And one of my favourite ones was, Wee! 
Mm. You know, that mm. really, that sense of expansion. So we did that first so that I got their emotional response to the music. And then the next thing I did was I made them work in pairs and write lyrics. Oh, fun. Uh So that they had to fit the words to the music. And it was extraordinary because lots of the lyrics that were written were not about love. Some of them were. Mm. They wrote totally different things. By doing that, they learned um, kind of intuitively how to fit words with the melody. So they were learning rhythm. Mm. And then when we got the actual text and looked at it, it kind of made sense to them and they ha- had found a better way of making the song their own. Mm. And that was something that I came up with because as a musician, you know, we, we've got this, this massive catalogue of um, emotional memories that fit with the music that we've been used to listening to. Mm. And if somebody presents us uh, music from a completely different culture, we can... Sometimes we can respond really well and go, wow, I've never heard anything like that before. It's fantastic. Mm. Or sometimes we go, yuck, that's different. I don't like that. Or simply, in terms of the language of music, it doesn't make sense to us. Yes, so we can't place it. So I think that's something that's really worthwhile doing uh, with your students, that those, that kind of whole listening thing and, and the emotion and getting into that backdrop and I think it's very important working with teens who sometimes, because of peer pressure, are very resistant to working with music cultures that don't seem cool. Yeah. So I wanted to share that. And immediately, I'm going off on two tangents already. Um, the first one is, it's a sort of simple version of what you're talking about, mm-hmm. which is to take the lyrics that you're singing and rewrite them in your own words. Mm-hmm. And so often mm-hmm. I will use text speak, I'll use slang, I use whatever, whatever it is, mm-hmm. you know, uh, look at him, he's fit, or, um, you know, um, GSOH, or whatever, whatever, um, because it brings the lyrics and the story and the, the action into your own world mm. rather than you putting yourself into what is sometimes quite a sort of stylized or idealized world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When you actually put it into your own language, it makes much more sense to well, you. Well, it gives you ownership. It does. And then you've got the intention and then you can, you're more, you're more in tune with the purpose of the song, yep. which is you you have something to communicate. And it takes I like me, that a lot. It takes me beautifully into um, one of the other people I was discussing, having the conversation with a couple of days ago, who said, I always start with the story and the emotion and the context. Mm-hmm. And we will actually talk about even, even learning a song. I don't start with the notes and the rhythms. Mm. I start with the words and the context and the emotions. And um, I thought that was really fascinating because mm. in a way I found it quite challenging because as an MD, normally I have a very small amount of time to get people accurate mm. on the notes and that's all I have. But I, I thought about it, we actually had quite a long discussion about it and I thought it was really fascinating that what you're doing is giving people the context in mm. which this thing happens. Mm. And I love that. I'm going to try that out. What is practising? In episode four, we break down what practicing achieves and how to do it. We had a new process for sending us AMAs. You can record your question on speakpipe.com slash vocal process. And we give a full 10 minute answer to our first recorded AMA from Steve Duguid on practicing in lessons. What I'm going to do is I'm going to play all three questions in a row, and then we're going to spend some time unpacking each question. Okay. I think that'd be really good. Mm. Here's question one, and this is Steve Duguid. How much time in a lesson do you think is reasonable to practice something? Make some progress, but say, this is something you need to spend a little time on in your own practice sessions, thus avoiding the lesson becoming paid to watch someone practice? Or do you think that's part of the job to ensure that practice is good practice in the lesson? It's an excellent it's question. It's a brilliant question. I think a lot of people are going to relate to that. And there's quite a lot in that question, so we're going to unpack it. Mm. Okay, so this is question two, and this is Sam Chambers. Okay. How can I encourage myself to stay still when practising rather than walking around the room? I love this question, and I've got a really specific answer for you, Sam. And then question three comes from Pippa Goss. Hello, Gillian and Jeremy. In your opinion, what is the difference between practicing and rehearsing? Such a great question. Well, that couldn't really, have been more time. It really it? follows on from yeah. your story. Yeah, mm. what is the difference mm. between practicing and rehearsing? And we've got some really great answers for that. 
So shall I go back to the first one, to Steve's? Yes. Okay, I'm going to read this out because we need to break this down. This is quite a complex two, question. two questions in there, I think. How much time in a lesson do you think is reasonable to practice something? Make some progress, but say, this is something you need to spend a little time on in your own practice sessions. That's the sort of, that's the first bit. And then avoiding the lesson becoming paid to watch someone practice. Or do you think that's part of the job to ensure that practice is good practice in the lesson? And that part two, I think, is a really interesting point. So can I start with part two? Um, I want to start with uh, avoiding the lesson becoming paid to watch someone practice. This is a really interesting point because what we're talking about is what is your job as a teacher? And it may be that when somebody comes to you, they have different expectations of to the next person for what your job is. For some people, it's tell me what to do. For some people, it's share with me what you think I should do. And for some people, it's like, this is what I'm doing. Is this okay or not? Um, and the whole business of being paid to watch someone practice, sometimes that is actually necessary. Mm-hmm. I agree. Are so many people, I mean, the, if you like, the, the, the people who are less experienced really don't know how to practice. They don't know what practice is. And so what they tend to do is just repetition, and that may not be practice, and we're going to unpack what good practice is. Um, but also, you'd be surprised how many professional performers don't know how to practice. What they tend to do is repetition or they just do the words, or they will go over and over and over a phrase or two. And it sounds like the situation, the story that you were telling was something very similar to that. Well, there's learning. Yes. There's memorising. Yes. There's things you need to practise. Yes. Uh, In between things you need to practise and rehearsal, there might be putting it together, or rehearsal might be putting it on its feet and putting it together. They're all different. Yes, they are. There's context I didn't know that when I was an undergraduate. Yeah, I worked this out some time ago, um, but I want to keep that for Pippa's answer. Um, So the answer to the first question is, occasionally... Yes, it is. It might be part of your job to be paid to watch someone practice. And in this case, what I would suggest is you say, here is the task that you have. Here is the sequence that I want you to do. And that denotes what you want someone to practice. And then you allow them or you encourage them to do that sequence in front of you because this is about physical embedding. This is about actually going through the experience of doing the sequence that you want them to do. Now, there's two things here. One is that the job of the teacher is to create the sequence. And it's a sequence that really needs to target whatever the issue is. And if you create a sequence that targets the issue, you then need to get it across to your student and not just verbally. They need to do it. They need to experience. They need it to repeat it. And so in that case, you're being paid to watch someone practice. But in a way, it's very focused in that you're showing them what it is that you want them to repeat when they're at home. Mm. So the sequencing that you're talking about, that the sequence of exercises or, um, excuse me, or maybe, you know, instructions that need to be followed, Mm. that's about skill acquisition. Yes. You are teaching the skill. Yes. And you need to make it clear to the student what it is that they need to practice. Yes. And yes, you do need to check their practice, in other words, the way that they're doing it, so that they're doing it correctly. Because, you know, one one thing we know about the brain is if we learn a pattern and we learn it incorrectly or we learn a skill incorrectly, it's much more difficult to undo it than if we didn't know the skill to begin with at all. Well, essentially, you're not undoing the skill because when you learn a pattern, you create a brain pathway, Mm -hmm. you don't you don't change that brain pathway. The brain pathway stays where it is. You replace it with a new brain pathway. Ah, well, now we're getting into neuroplasticity, yes. which, of course, is one of the things that makes practice useful to us. And essential. Just having a little headphone moment there. And essential. So we've got skill acquisition. And yes, teachers, it is your job, it is your job. to impart skill acquisition during your lessons. And here's a good one. If your student doesn't get it, you haven't done it clearly enough. Mm-hmm. Your responsibility, not the student's. Yeah, it is. It is. And it may be that the student kind of gets it a couple of times in the lesson, but not enough to repeat. Mm. 
uh, with without thinking about it. So the practicing is to take them to the next stage, it is. which is called skill retention. Yep. So that's why they practice it over and again, maybe in stages. And once they've got it, maybe they can mix and match with other exercises. Sure. And um, another nice word that we learned from working with speech therapists was generalize it. How do they generalize that skill? So they're not just doing it in that particular vocalese that you've given them, oh. or even just in that song, but you know, they're going to need that skill somewhere else in another song. Mm. So ideally your job as a teacher is to kind of keep an eye on that progress, particularly if you're working with a, um, an unskilled or an inexperienced singer. That's and good. maybe to remind them, look, you can use that skill in this song. Yeah, shall we have a go at that now? That could be something you could do two lessons down the road. That's very good. I like that. So I hope, Stephen, that that answers that part of your question. Um, so going to the first part of the question, how much time in a lesson do you think it's reasonable to practice something? Make some progress, but say this is something you need to spend a little time on in your own practice sessions. It's a really great question. Mm. Um and my answer is, when you are a teacher and you're doing a technical lesson, for instance, uh, you normally have something that isn't working that you want them to work to work in a different way or to make it work differently. So you are teaching them a technique or you're teaching them a position or you're teaching them um, a, a shape to use or hold or a sound or to Or maybe make. a pattern of a vocalese. Yep. Um, and what you then want to do is you know, teach them whatever that is, and then get them to repeat it and get them to repeat it more than once. And this is really interesting because with a lot of teachers, and we've been working with a lot of teachers over the last 10 years, people tend to want to move on very quickly to the next problem. Mm. And in fact, what we're saying is one skill at a time. Mm. Um, in fact, you know, one target and do one target and do repetition. So in answer to your question, First of all, it depends. It's always context. Mm. But I think, honestly, slightly longer than you would think for somebody to practice something or somebody to repeat mm -hmm. the thing. And if you like, you're still there because you're still monitoring whether they're doing the repetition of what you've asked them to do clearly and appropriately. I was just thinking about things like um, learning patterns um, and learning intervals. Um, we focus on getting it right. But in fact, what you could do, say the interval is, is an interval of a fourth or something like that, which is um, often a difficult, um, an interval that people have difficulty with. So, and you're doing it in an upward direction. Mm -hmm. So do that a few times and then do it in a downward direction. Then practice that interval of a fourth in different parts of the singer's range. Mm -hmm. Maybe practice it legato, maybe practice it staccato, uh, maybe put uh, little syllables on it so that you begin to embed it by embed the pattern by doing slightly different things with it. And this is an interesting question. I mean, you know, gosh, we could break that down mm. as well. There's one thing I want to pick out, which is why is it important to do that fourth in different parts of the singer's range? Because it feels different dependent on where you are in your range. Completely. And as an instrumentalist, as a pianist, a fourth on, on the keyboard is a fourth. Mm. You know, C to F in front of you is the same as C to F an octave higher, is the same as C to F three octaves higher. Um, C to F is not quite the same as D flat to G flat. Okay, you're on the black notes now, but the actual interval is the same. If you're doing two black notes mm. anywhere, it's the same interval, it's the same distance. Mm. But when you're singing and you're creating each note as it is, you don't have a, if you like, a perfectly matched range. Nobody does. We work to make it sound the same, usually, not always, um, but it isn't the same. It isn't, it doesn't feel the same. The effects aren't the same. So working that fourth interval in different parts of your range will enable you to feel that fourth differently across your voice. Mm -hmm. And you feel it differently in your voice. Yep. In fact, I learned this fairly late on in my teaching. I'd probably been teaching for about 20 years. And I had a client come to me who was a very experienced dancer. And she always used to have problems with auditions because she couldn't get through the singing part. And she sort of had one song that she'd worked on with another teacher for years and years. And it was just about okay. So she was someone who had a real difficulty with pitch matching. She definitely wasn't tone deaf uh, because if I used to make a sound like hmm to her, she would pitch match it perfectly. Mm. 
But as soon as it came to processing it in music, she had a lot more difficulty. And I remember one day saying to her, well, but that interval, is it that step, didn't use the word interval, that step is exactly the same distance in this part of the song as it in this as it is here and she said well it doesn't feel the same mm. and i thought oh well that's because you're in a different part of your range so we then started working that in in mm-hmm. the lessons yeah so um mm. that was the long version steve of the answer um i hope that worked for you that was we got a lot out of that one didn't yeah we? we've now written 10 books between us and in episode five we tell a few of the stories behind writing the books in this best bit Gillian talks about how she came to write the iconic Singing in the Actor book, and we chat about what it's like to write in a tiny one-bedroom council flat on a London housing estate. Hello, and welcome to This is a Voice podcast, episode five, The Stories Behind the Stories. So what's the topic today? Well, can I just say that my hands are in prayer mode, (laughs) because one of the joys of living in the countryside our uh, noise is off and the noise off for most of the morning which has held up our recording has been a buzz saw yes uh, we have a river running through the garden and just across the river is a, a veritable forest and uh, the environment agency are out today cutting some of the forest down and today they chose to be right outside our door lovely yeah so if, okay. you, if you hear um sawing it's because that's what's happening uh, oh and by the way you might also hear chickens as well they are on a tea break right now yeah Long may their tea break continue. Fingers crossed. Okay, so we thought it would be interesting to talk about our books. And in fact, we're going to talk about the first two of our books. Yes. And uh, a little bit about the process of writing, what that's like, and how we came to write the books. Let's start with yours then. Yes. Singing in the Actor. Yeah, I, actually, I'd like to talk about how it came about because I think I wrote my first book when I was 44. So um, it sort of came out of the blue. And um, I think this is useful for any of you to know who are perhaps aspiring writers, you've got something to say. I'll be honest and say I'd never even thought of writing a book. But someone that I was working with was an editor for ANC Black. She worked in the music department, Mm. Anna Sanderson, who's since become um, a lifelong friend, actually. And uh, Anna was having singing lessons with me. And one particular day we were working on Sondheim's I Remember. And I was talking about the process of how you put words together with the music in singing, because Anna's... um, musical background had been I think on the bassoon and the violin and and keyboard as well and she'd done a pretty much mainstream um, classical training and had done a a degree at uh, Cambridge University and I was explaining that the way um, the text is lifted off the page for an actor who sings is very different from the way that a singer sings and As a result of that, and it could have even been six months later or a year later, a book had been submitted to ANC Black by somebody else, I don't know who it was, uh, as, you know, a sort of a a pitch. And Anna had been asked to look at it, you know, a bit about singing. And apparently she said, hmm, why don't you ask someone to write a book who actually knows about the voice? Uh, which was very kind of her, and that was when they approached me. So that's how it came about. Oh, I was I actually didn't you didn't know, know that story. That story. No. Yes, indeed. Ask I, someone I who actually and knows, know yes. <laughs> and uh, that was very nice. And we were both very lucky, in fact, because we had Anna as our editor for both books, and she yeah. was fabulous. She's great. I think, in terms of. The editorial process, it really, really helps to have someone who understands when, where you're coming from. Can we say how important having an mm-hmm. editor is? Mm. So important. Having a really good editor. And, and the thing is that Anna, because she already had a musical background mm. and she was having singing lessons as well, she understood enough about the process. She understood enough about what we were talking about to be able to guide us in what we were saying in both books, in fact, mm. um, but not to interfere too much with the whole writing process. Mm. It was very is a very fine hand she had it was really good and actually i will say hats off to anc black at the time because the um my main editor was somebody else in the drama department and she was the one that commissioned the work initially 
But when it came to going through the editorial process, she very sensibly handed it over to Anna to do most of the work because mm. she said, I know nothing about music mm. and this is about singing and singing is about music. Mm. And that's how it came about. So, yeah, a big thank you to our friend Anna for um, putting up with us in various uh, editions and various uh, other books that we wrote. And we eventually wrote um, the Singing Express, Express series. series with her. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to writing, the actual writing of the book, oh. which was interesting. We were uh, living in my flat, which was a one-bedroom flat on a council estate, um, which was basically like a set of The Bill, if you've seen The Bill. Mm. It was. It could have been a quite a scary place. But a typical uh, kind of inner London, you know, high-rise. Yeah. And so there wasn't really anywhere for Gillian to sit and write. Um, so what did I do? We set up in the kitchen. Yes. We had a large kitchen. Yeah. So we, we set up a workstation. It was pretty much my first computer, by the way. Um, I didn't even start to learn a computer, uh, how to work on a computer till my 40s. So there I was in this little workstation in the corner of the kitchen. I basically locked you in the kitchen and said, you're not coming out until the book's written. Uh, I typically had that writer's block, you know. I'd, I'd started, I'd written down ideas. I'd submitted a synopsis, which they loved, by the way. They said it was pretty much the best synopsis they'd ever received. And then I was stuck, you know. I was totally on the pot. I could not <laughs> get writing. <laughs> So tell them what you did. Oh, I locked him in the kitchen. I, I, I said, you know, fine, you know, I will do everything that's required to run the house, to run the business, but you are staying in that kitchen and you are not coming out until that book is finished. Thou shalt sit in the kitchen and write. Yep. Is, you know, that was the edict. So this and, was 1999 when you actually started writing that book. Mm, yeah, I'd done a little bit. It was about two and a half years from start to finish. Right, right. Yeah. 98, 99. And I, I think... You know, writer's block is real oh, because yeah. you have the idea, you have the concept, and then you're sitting down with that, you know, blank piece of paper or that the blank Word document, and suddenly everything dries up. Mm. And I think in the end what we talked about was well, just write what you do. Mm. I think also it's the it's the business of because you – there's often a lot of thoughts going around in your head and trying to mm. get them down on paper is – Paper is a clarification process, but it's also very complex because you have a lot of thoughts that have emotions and images and all sorts of things, and you have to get it down into the written word. Mm, and mm. that makes it quite a challenge to get something clear enough. Because all, always when we write books, our aim is to get something clear enough that you can read the words and do the exercise. That, so we try to make it as unambiguous as possible. And that's part of the challenge. And I think just sitting mm, and mm. writing, even if you're writing rubbish is good because often in the rubbish there'll be something that will come out something that will come out yeah um and I will say I remember when when the book first came out that one of my students who I trained at the East 15 acting school said oh I love the book because it's in the first person and I just feel like you're talking to me and it was I didn't actually know that it was a big decision, that it was a brave decision to write in the first person. To me, it seemed really obvious this is what I do. Mm. Uh, and then, you know, I had people contact me and say, oh, that was very brave that you did that. Yeah, apparently that was really unusual. Mm. It wasn't normally mm. done to yeah. write a, a study book like that in the first person. Yeah, and retrospectively, as a researcher, of course, you don't do that. Or if you do, you kind of declare uh, why you're doing it in a certain part of the research. Mm. So it isn't just about I. Anyway, um, yeah, I think one of the reasons why the book was successful was because I did have a process. I started to work with actors pretty much by accident. Mm. In the 1980s, people who taught singing to actors nearly always came from a classical singing background, which I did. And often what happened in those days was that if you were working on singing with an actor and you came from that background, all of those classical exercises and that classical music approach would turn an actor off because an actor is inspired by text and by physicality. Yeah. And thought process. Yeah. yeah. 
What about the writing process itself? Oh, let's you know? talk about writing. By the way, it's so funny that I should, I only realised this, it's so funny I should pick Like a Virgin because we were both virgin book writers when we wrote this these books. I did wonder what you were going to say yeah, then. Yeah, yeah, the, <laughs> the, um, yeah. Uh, Singing in the Actor was your first book. It was my and first book. And it was actually book. pretty much the first thing that you'd written in an extended way. Um, yes, it was. As a matter of fact, I always used to keep notes and I would make class notes and sometimes practice notes for my students and again that you know that became um some of the material that I put into the book um but I hadn't done an extended piece of writing since I was an undergraduate mm. my last piece of extended work before 2002 was as a my postgrad yeah, yeah. so how did we learn to write um <laughs> we just did it apparently well <laughs> turns out we're quite good at it yeah and again I think having a good editor really really helps I do think it's important even in a work of non-fiction that you allow yourself to you know if it's not a a research book you allow yourself to find your own voice within the book very much I think we both did that Mm. um I think also we had a very strong structure to begin with and then it was how do we put all the instructions that we have in our head, how mm. do we put them down? How do we actually describe what it is that we're, we're talking about? Because in both books, there was never going to be any audio. So it mm. has to be all written word. And in fact, mm. the same thing happened with This Is A Voice uh, with the Wellcome Trust in 2016. Mm. We were told that it was 99 exercises for voice training, but we would never have a video or a a CD or or MP3s or any sound files at all. So it all had to be spoken, uh, written word. I tell you what, there is nothing like having to write it down to clarify your thoughts. Yes. It is, you know, it's a phenomenal process. And I think maybe reflecting on that, the fact that we have had to write about our practice Mm. has made us... um, you know, has has brought us to. It's made us really level up yes. with with our our own our own teaching, in person teaching. When you know that something is going to be published, you have to decide that you're going to stand behind it. Yeah. And when you know that you can stand behind something, it does not matter what people say. You still know that what you wrote is good. Aha! Uh-huh, you're which going to reviews. Which brings me beautifully <laughs> to reviews. It's you know we're living in a very different cultural environment now, aren't we? Because you know we have Facebook and we have YouTube and, um, you know, people get a lot of feedback uh, and people are maybe much more used to it. But, you know, when you write your first book, you feel quite vulnerable. Oh, it's like a child. And if you get a bad review, um, it can be really devastating. Devastating. And we've had... We have had some corkers. We've had good reviews and we've had bad reviews. There's one review still up on Amazon uh, for singing in the actor saying the book is dangerous because it talks about belting. Uh, on the other hand, there are some fantastic reviews of yeah. the book up there. Yeah. Um, yeah, you need You had a thing about, about types of reviews, and I really thought this was lovely, yeah. and I wish we'd known this in 2000 yes, and in 2002. Quite. I, I know. I mean, I had one review that, that really, really shocked me, and I, I won't go into details, but uh, when I reported it to my editor, she said, now there are reviews and there are character assassinations. Ignore this one because it's the second. Mm. And... Now reflecting, there are reviews that really kind of, you know, someone's actually read the book and they're able to put it into a context and reflect on it and say something sensible about it, uh, including a critique. I mean, if I do a review of a book, I, I will normally make some critique at some point. Mm. To be honest, if I hate the book, I won't review it. I've only ever done I know you once. did it once, yeah. It was a commission. I was asked to review a mm. book by a magazine and I had a real problem with it because it was so, well, I'm going to use the word arrogant. And yet I, there was still some good stuff in yeah. it and I still said And you so. look for the good stuff. Yes. So, yes, there's a reflective review. Um, there's character assassination. And sometimes, look out for this, those of you who are um, publishing, Sometimes people use the review for personal promotion, their as own, in, oh, I, I could really, I could do this a lot better. Um, you know, we all do this, don't we? Yes. And we all do this far think, better than is written in Well, then one. write your own book, Sunshine. Yeah, where's yours? 
So uh, that brings me to a kind of final question, which is why write a book? Yeah. Why? I can tell you that it's not for the money. <laughs> no, non-fiction books you do not write for the money. No, absolutely not. I think it's because it has to be said. Oh, totally. There's something that you have to put out there, even though it's a work of non-fiction. It is a creative act. Everything... I think that we've published um, 18 webinars. Every one of those webinars, I've said, let's do it because. And we always Mm. have a because. And the because is this information needs to get out in some way because Mm. in sometimes we're counteracting some total bullshit that's out there. And sometimes it's because, oh, I understand this. I understand how it works. And I just like to share it with people. Mm. So if someone does approach you and suggest that you write a book, make sure that it's something you really, really want to share with the world. Mm. I can tell you that I've been approached more than once to uh, turn my PhD into a book. And I'm going to be quite honest and say, in my experience, people who turn their PhDs into books generally produce something that is rather deadly. There are only a very few exceptions that I've seen. Um, I'm writing a foreword for one uh, right now, actually. Mm. I didn't want to do that because I thought, well, I'm going to be bored doing it. And that means the reader's going to be bored uh, reading it. And I don't want to do that. I would rather get the core information about my own doctoral research out there in a different form, which we do in our teaching. I think the format is really important Mm. because with a PhD, it has a particular target. It has a particular goal in mind. And when you then publish it as a, as a as a, a textbook or a novel or a book or whatever, mm. the goal is different and actually the target audience is different. And unless you can rewrite it to get to that tar- new target mm. audience, it's deadly. It needs a lot of morphing. So no offence to my fellow uh, doctoral uh, singing <laughs> pedagogues, uh, but I'm sure you found it quite a hard process making that switch between the, the thesis and the book. And I decided I wasn't going to do it. It's been interesting for us in the whole writing career, because right up to between singing and the actor, successful singing auditions, the Singing Express series, This Is A Voice, all of those were commissions. Mm. So we were mm. asked to write them. It wasn't until I did How, um, How, How to Sing, sing Legato mm. was the first one. And that was a, a beautiful example of I have been working on this genuinely for about seven years. It was born out of desperation, that book. It was born out of desperation because (laughs) there is so much crap talked about uh, legato. And I just Mm. went, it's so straightforward. Please can we do this? Mm. But another another example of me sitting on the pot and not being able to get off it. That's why eventually we published it. Seven years. We published it and we published it ourselves. So in in essence, I commissioned myself to Mm. do it. And that does have its advantages, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, That is perhaps a very neat segue into talking about our sponsors for today. So the sponsor for today is Canny Publishing, and Canny Publishing is the publishing arm of Vocal Process. Mm. Canny is spelled C-A-N-U, so it looks like can you, but in fact is a Welsh word for to utter, to speak, to sing, to pronounce, to orate, to give poetry. It's a hugely Mm. um, varied word Mm. uh, pronounced Canny. And uh, the book that, obviously, I've mentioned it a few times, which is Why Do I Need a Vocal Coach, which is the latest one. And as I said, I think it's the follow-up to Successful Singing Auditions. It's a lovely book. Yeah. Mm. So, um, by the way, if you've got any of the books that we've mentioned, um, uh, please, will you go and put uh, reviews of them on YouTube? We are on YouTube, on Amazon, on anywhere you like. Preferably not a character assassination, oh, okay? Well, the thing is that we have, <laughs> thank you, we already have enough character assassinations over the years. Um, but if you can do us a reflective review, mm. that would be brilliant. Mm. Um, and or tell us your experience yeah. of, of the book and how you've been using it. We'd love to know. Yes. So I think we're done. Mm. Um, we are on uh, YouTube. Oh, by the way, this is a, a little shout out for the YouTube channel. The YouTube channel has been fairly dormant for a couple of years, mm. but I've just started uploading two new series. Somebody asked us for the videos that went with This Is A Voice. Now, just to explain that, when we wrote the book and we were right almost at the end of the final editing process, mm. we'd all been told all along that we're going to be no videos, no audio, no nothing. 
And they were so pleased with the manuscript that they said, actually... This is the Wellcome Wellcome Foundation. Foundation, We're going to provide a budget for you to film some Mm. videos. Mm. And so we were brought in on the... This is very bizarre. The Wellcome filmed the videos and we were brought in on our own book to be consultants, which is slightly weird. That was good. It was very good. uh, And we had two actors and we had had a lot of fun. We did. And so the Wellcome have released two of the series, which Mm. is one unspoken voice and a series on beatboxing. Mm. And um, somebody requested about three weeks ago that they couldn't find them, and and did I have them? And I thought, actually, yes, I do. So they're now on our YouTube channel. They are now being uploaded as we speak onto the YouTube channel. I think, I can't remember how many are up there already, Mm. but I think they're going up until, I think there's another couple to go up. So if you're keen to see a few of those exercises demonstrated, go yes. there. We will uh, we will do a podcast where we talk about the other books, won't we, and, yes. and that process. But yes. we, we wanted to start at the beginning. Yes. With the stories behind the stories. Where it all started. So um, check out the YouTube channel, which is Vocal Process. Check out Facebook, which is Vocal Process. Check out Twitter, which is mm. at Vocal Process. And sign up to our newsletter, which is vocalprocess.co.uk. Now, we haven't used any AMAs for this podcast, but we love your AMAs. Yes. Can you tell them where they can submit them? Please do. Please record your AMAs because we'd love mm. to hear your voice uh, actually asking us. And so if you go on to speakpipe.com slash vocal process and you can record questions for us and we will play them in the podcast. So that's brilliant. We are done, I think. So um, we will see you next time. Over and out. Yeah. Bye. Bye bye. This is A Voice, a podcast with Dr. Gillian Kays and Jeremy Fisher.